Good morning, Lighthouse Community Church. How are you doing today? It's a little bit different than it was last Sunday, isn't it? I mean, last Sunday we made an attempt. We asked the Lord. We worked with all the different people that gave us advice and said, go ahead and try. And we did. And for about 50 of you last week, we're so grateful that we had the opportunity to have you come and be back in the church. And you know what, church? There's still people in the building this morning. And there's people gathering all around the world today. Some are gathering not because it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but some people are gathering because it's the only thing they can do to keep them alive. Church, I can't help but think about the underground church this morning in places where the word of God's illegal, in places where singing's not just uh, not recommended for a week or a month, but forever. And yet this morning, for all of us who are in this building, we sang like there was no tomorrow. And maybe that's how we should be living Like there is no tomorrow because the Bible actually says that. Why do you say tomorrow you're going to go here? Why do you think tomorrow you're going to go do this? All we have, church, is today. So let us worship the Lord. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us study his word. And let us embrace this moment for the challenge that the church has to face today. We are to be the light, the salt of the world today. This is not our home. This this home will be made anew. I pray for your strength and your encouragement this morning. Would you join me in a time of prayer? Father God, we are so grateful that each and every week over the last lineage of this church since 1948 that you've allowed this church door to open up and to speak the word of God and to sing the word of God and to try to live out the word of God. We pray, Father, that you would not just let this light go out in Costa Mesa, but all across the world today, especially, Father, for the underground church today that will be gathering in places where not only is it illegal, but it's life-threatening to profess the name of Jesus Christ. Father, will you be that source of encouragement that we need? Will you be that strength to remind us that joy comes in the morning? And it's here. We have the peace that passes all understanding. We have the hope that is the buried, resurrected King, Jesus Christ, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. We have paid a price for freedom, and the price was paid exclusively by Jesus Christ. May everything that we continue to say and do in this building, and as the word of God continues to go out, bring honor and glory to and through exclusively him. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, man, I miss having you guys here. Uh, I really, really do. And I and happy 4th of July weekend. I know that this was a really interesting year. Um, it's one of those years where, as somebody who was born in America, somebody who has been born with this idea that freedom is just, you know, it, it, it's there, it's something you take for granted, this year felt different. Um, and I think that it's easy for us to feel discouraged based upon just how different this year is and the fact that you're not free to go to the beach and other things like that out of a desire to limit the spread of this virus. That said, perhaps the best example that I saw of why it is, why we are grateful to live where we do came from somebody who immigrated here to America. And he he was writing about how grateful he was to now be a United States citizen because he has family that's back in Hong Kong who are not free to speak their minds, who are not free to push back even against those who are in power, who are trying to take their freedoms. And one of the things I really appreciate is that he recognizes we're truly blessed. And so in that, I am grateful. Even though we do not consider ourselves first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of America, 
Can we consider ourselves first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God? And that changes everything. We've been talking a lot about that. We are going to continue to talk about that. But I am grateful that God has us in America. I am grateful that although it's an imperfect union, that's never what our founding fathers were going for. They were going for a more perfect union. It is imperfect. It's still in process. We're in it together. And my desire is that we would work at that more perfect union together. And today we're going to be talking about that. As we dive back into Acts, our conversation today is going to bring us to one of my absolutely favorite passages in the book of Acts. It's one that if I had to say that there are probably five passages I go to over and again, this is one of them. Because this particular passage is one that when I was teaching persuasive writing at Vanguard University, I found myself going to again and again because it helps us make sense of how do I speak to a people who disagree with me, who don't share the same worldview spiritually? How do I have a conversation with them in a way that they can receive the gospel? Because at the end of the day, it seems like everything is is divisive. It's not unifying. But the gospel is good news for everybody on this planet. And it's our desire that they would come to know Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going today. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And while you're doing that, let's go ahead and throw the map up on the screen so that you can see it. So right now, there's a map in front of you and you can see over on the right side of that is a a dot over in a place called Antioch. That's where Paul and Timothy and Silas began their second missionary journey. They had planned to go to that big pink area, which is Asia, But the Holy Spirit had a totally different uh, intent for them. So he said, nope, don't go there. And they were willing to submit their path. It ultimately led them up to that top left yellow space called Macedonia. And last week, we saw them interacting in a town called Philippi. And there, Paul drove a demon, or at least freed a slave girl from spiritual oppression he was thrown in jail for doing so because it messed with some of the financial uh, you know, stability of, of some people that owned her. And even there in the depths of jail, Paul, God used Paul to advance his kingdom purposes. From there, and we're going to skip over a little bit of Acts chapter 17. From there, they go on down to the town of Thessalonica, where Paul once again goes into uh, a synagogue and begins to share the gospel message with Jews who are waiting for the Messiah. But they are very resistant to it. And they drive him and his retinue out of town. And then he finds his way to a town called Berea. And once again, he goes into the synagogue. And once again, Jews are listening to the gospel. But the Berean Berean Jews were very different from those from Thessalonica. And they listened. But they didn't just take Paul's word for it. They began to study the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. And they're affirmed in scripture for that. And then from there, um, even, even in Berea, even as Paul and Timothy and Silas are experiencing really positive things, the Thessalonican Jews hear that they're there, they send some people down and they cause a big ruckus, so much so that it's not safe for Paul to stay. And so he says, listen, it's fruitful here. Timothy, Silas, I want you to stay. I'm going to head south to Athens. All right, come on back. I'm going to head down to Athens, which is that that green dot down there at the bottom. And in Athens, I will wait for you. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Athens, because this is important. Athens was the center 
of Greek philosophy and the center of Greek thinking. It was the home of of such luminaries as Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. And Greek thinking, which was shaped so much by Athens, has shaped our world, even to this day, so much of what we understand in America, uh, so much of our political thinking and the structures and things started from Athenian thinking, or, or Greek thinking. It's based upon that in a large part. Um, so many of the pantheon of gods, if you watch like Percy Jackson and any of those things, some of you, some of your kids are into, those are shaped by the Greek kind of pantheon of gods that they worshiped. This is where Paul went into the heart, the center of Greek philosophical thinking. And we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So obviously the people in Athens worshipped a tremendous amount of gods. But their worship, according to Paul, was very misled because they were worshipping gods that were nothing. They were worshipping images that were made out of metal and made out of stone and made out of wood. And he goes, they have as much power as that metal is worth. That's the extent of it. They're worthless, misguided worship. And he was distressed by it. So he went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks like he normally did. He reasoned about the gospel, but he didn't just stay there. He also went into the marketplace, the agora, where we get the term agoraphobia. It comes from this Greek word agora, the, the, the central gathering place where people were doing business and rubbing shoulders with one another. He would go there and he would have conversations with whomever crossed his path. We read in verse 18, while he was in the agora in the marketplace, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now this It's easy for us to gloss it over because we don't really know who the Epicureans and the Stoics are anymore. But this would be like having people from diametrically opposing perspectives. People, some of whom are wearing masks and thinks it's absolutely important, and some who are like, no, forget about it. You don't have to wear a mask. All coming together and wanting to have a conversation with you. And you're trying to communicate to all of them at the same time, right? It's a no-win situation. Because the Epicureans and the Stoics had diametrically opposing worldviews. The Epicureans did not believe that God created the world. They believed that it just kind of came into existence. And because of that, they didn't believe that there was some overarching moral perspective that should drive a human being's life. There wasn't some God saying, this is how you should live. These are the values you should have. Instead, they simply looked at this life and said, you know the highest Calling for us is to find pleasure. That means avoiding excesses, but it also means avoiding pain. And the Epicurean moral philosophy could best be summed up by eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So that's them. The Stoics, on the other hand, absolutely believe that this world was brought into existence by spiritual powers, but not just one God, a whole pantheon of gods. And the Stoic philosophy was the dominant philosophy in Paul's day. They shaped so much of the the culture in Athens, which then shaped the culture in Greece, which then shaped the culture of the world and the the mindset. Because even the Roman culture was built upon 
the Greek philosophy. And, and even the Roman gods were borrowed from the pantheon of Greek gods. And so you have people, I, I should mention also the Stoics, believed that there was a power. They called it the fates that ultimately drove people's lives and the choices that they made. And so into this, he's got people with totally different worldviews that are talking with him. And they're starting to have a conversation. And Paul naturally brings the conversation around to the gospel, to introducing him to Jesus. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say, right? This guy is just talking Others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, we'd like to know the new teaching that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. Now, the Areopagus is a really important space in Athenian culture. Can we go ahead and put the picture up? This is what the... uh, So you see in the background that large kind of rock structure, that is the Acropolis. And on top of it is the Parthenon. That was a temple built to to Athena, the patron goddess of Athens. But then there's a, a big rock structure down below that kind of sits in front of that. That is that space that we're talking about. That is the Areopagus, or at least what remains of it today. Can we show the next picture? This is an artist's rendering, though, of what it would have looked like in that day. Again, in the background, you've got the Acropolis with the Parthenon on top of it. And in the front, you've got this large space. This. This was the Areopagus. This was the central meeting space for the Greek philosophers. This is where they would go, all the most influential philosophers, whether they were Epicurean or Stoic or some other philosophy, this is where they would go to talk about their philosophical beliefs. This is where they would hash them out. All right, come on back to me. And so we read in verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived in that city spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds nothing like today, right? Now that we don't have baseball, now that we don't have football, now that we don't have anything else to keep us occupied, none of us spend any time on social media arguing about the latest ideas and and conspiracy theories, right? None of us spend any time arguing about these things, except that we do. I can't wait till we have baseball back. Or I, and that's huge coming from me. Rob, and I know you're shocked right now. I can't wait till we have baseball back so we can have something to just distract us from the constant bickering. But this was the national pastime of the Athenians, arguing for fun. So Paul is invited to a gathering of the most influential philosophers in that space. Philosophers that would shape the thinking of people far beyond Athens. It would be like saying, hey, Don Lemon and um, uh, Ben Shapiro and Kim Kardashian are all going to get together and with a whole bunch of other influencers of our day, we want you to come and share your perspective on life. Will you come? If you were asked that, and some of you are scratching your head like, who? But if you were asked to come and, and speak with the most influential people of our day, how would you do it? If you, you know, how might you approach it? Would you come and and just rail on them? 
for the ways that they, they're misguided? Would you talk about the emptiness of living for idols? Would you just share your story? Or would you potentially avoid going all together, right? Like, what do I have to say to them? What's the point? I find it very interesting to see the way that Paul responds. After this invitation, would you come and share with the most influential people in Athens? Paul goes to the Areopagus, and this is what he says. Verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, does that surprise you, his response? Because remember, the very first thing we read about when he comes into Athens is that he is very concerned about their idolatry. And now, it sounds like he's almost affirming them for their idols. What gives? What is he up to? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to step back for a second. This is a conversation I have had a number of times with students as we're talking about persuasion in my classes. Because when we are attempting to persuade somebody, it is incredibly important that we remember something that seems obvious, but we forget very, very easily. And that is that not everybody is the same. As, as similar as we may be, as, as much as we may live in the same city as other people, as much as we may work at the same business as somebody, as much as we may have the same educational background or look similar to them, we are all different. And we must take into consideration that you don't speak to one person the way you speak to another person. I learned this the hard way when I was... Uh, when I was uh, coaching water polo back at my high school. Because what would be encouraging to one of my water polo players could crush another, right? I've had to relearn this over and again with my sons. I've got two boys. But I can't parent them both exactly the same way when I try. It's just frustrating. It causes them frustration. It causes me frustration. Each person is uniquely different. And when you speak to them, you need to speak to them in a way that they can understand. That's incredibly important. Paul got this. He got that when he would go into the synagogue and he was given the opportunity to share the gospel, it sounded diametrically opposed to how he will present and how he will approach those who are non-believers. And up to this point in Acts, every time we've seen Paul share the gospel, it's been to Jews or God-fearing Greeks. So he's been speaking to people who already understood his language, but now he's speaking to people who do not speak the same language. They don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't take the Jewish scriptures to be foundational to their worldview. And so he can't approach it in the same way. And therefore, he looks for a way to start the conversation, to hook them in. Imagine for a moment if Paul had just come right out and say, you guys are a bunch of pagan idol worshipers and they, they are meaningless. They're worth nothing. Well, that would be the end of that conversation, Right? When we are attempting to communicate to people, it is not enough to know what we believe. 
when we are trying to communicate to people, it's not enough simply to speak the truth as we understand it in a language we understand. We must also take into consideration the people whom we're speaking to, the language they understand. And to do so in a way that is compelling as opposed to repelling. Right? That's a hugely different thing. So, so often what I see on social media is we are speaking in a way that we may be speaking what we believe to be truth, but we are doing so in a way that is so repelling, pushing people away, pushing them further into their own camp because we're attacking them. And Paul takes a very, very different approach here. When we are speaking to people who are different than us, our words matter. And if we don't take into consideration how our audience will hear it, we are in for a world of hurt. I've learned this over and over and over again. Perhaps (laughs) one of the, the least flattering moments for me, and I'll share it with you and I have permission to share this, um, (laughs) was back when I was dating my wife. I was a lifeguard for a while, and so I decided that a really romantic evening would be to go down to the lifeguard, uh, you know, one of the towers, sit in there and watch the sunset. And it was a wonderful evening. Sunset, we, we, we had great conversation, but once the sunset, it started getting cold, it was time to go, I naturally just jumped out of the tower. And then my, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, tried to get down herself. But she hadn't jumped out of that tower a hundred times. And so she was un, uncertain about it. And she was struggling. She was afraid she was going to fall. And I just was laughing. I'm like, come on, you big dork, get down. And in that moment, she turned around and looked at me. And the look in her face told me that I'd messed up. She said, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, I didn't mean anything by that. Dork is a term of endearment. She goes, no, 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 no. What did you mean by big? Hey guys, just take it from me as somebody who's learned the hard way. If you ever say that word to your sweetie, just run, okay? Because nothing good can come of it. But I was young enough and naive enough to think that I could somehow dig myself out of this hole. So then I tried to reason with her, even though I never meant anything by it by the first place, but I figured that I could explain it. So I, I, I said, well, you know the so-and-so referencing one of the girls in our life group? She's like a chihuahua. And if I was dating her, I'd probably step on her and, 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 and kill her, right? You're like a Great Dane. Now, keep in mind, my family had Great Danes. We, I, I love big dogs. I love, and so for me, it was the highest affirmation I could give to this girl that I cared a lot about. What did she hear? I just called her a big dog. It didn't go well for me that night. But needless to say, I didn't get a kiss goodnight. Because our words matter, and not just the words as we understand them. The words as they are understood by our audience matters. And here's what Paul could have done. He could have spoken Christianese to this group of pagan philosophers. He could have railed from reading the scriptures saying, The Bible says... Idolatry is bad. The Bible says you shall not make any image of anything created to represent God. You're breaking the law. But the Bible was not normative for those pagan philosophers' lives. That would have meant nothing to them. And so, instead, Paul takes a different tack. He looks for a hook by which he can begin to have a conversation. Man, I see that you guys take your spirituality very 
seriously. I've been walking around. I've been looking at all of the idols and the statues that you have. I mean, you even have one to an unknown God because you don't want to miss out on any of them. So, you know that that one God that you've been worshiping even though you don't know him? I know him. He's the creator of heaven and earth and I want to tell you about him. And that is the hook that Paul uses. It's not because he's trying to affirm idolatry. It's because he's trying to speak their language. Let's continue in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. I can imagine that as he's saying this, he's pointing up to the Acropolis in which they're sitting in its shadow. He's pointing up to the temple to Athena. And he's saying the God of the universe, that unknown God, doesn't live in temples like that. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of this land. How do you think the Stoics would have heard that? The Stoics who believed in the fates controlling things. And he's saying, no, no, no. That unknown God, the creator of heaven and earth, he's the one who maps out people's lives. He's the one who has determined when you are born and when you die and where you live. He's the one that controls your fate. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, and here Paul quotes not scripture, but he quotes one of their own pagan poets. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That's a really important thing for us to take into consideration. When we are speaking to people who do not consider Scripture to be normative, we can't just rely on Scripture to persuade them. If we do, we've lost them right out of the bat. Instead, we need to become students of the audience to which we're trying to speak. And we need to speak in such a way that they can receive it. And sometimes that means using their own philosophers, using their own influencers, using their own writers, quoting them because that will give greater credibility. There's a reason why in the church C.S. Lewis's name is nails. You quote C.S. Lewis, you quote N.T. Wright, you quote one of these other people that is an influencer, you you quote Billy Graham, that's great for Christians. But what about for non-believers? Those names don't carry nearly as much weight. And Paul recognized that, so he didn't bother quoting Scripture like he had done with the Jews. Here he quotes their own philosophers. Let's keep going. Therefore, and this is where we get... Remember how I said that Paul was distressed by their idolatry, but he didn't start with arguing that they shouldn't be idolaters? Well, now, after he's hooked them and after he's introduced them to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now he talks about their idolatry. He says, therefore... Since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like some gold or silver or stone image made by human design and skill, okay? Those idols are nothing compared to who God really is. He created us. We didn't create him. And in the past, God overlooked 
such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from the ways they've been living. And he's speaking to people who have been worshiping idols. And he's, and he's basically saying, you have been living out to the best of your knowledge, honoring this unknown God. But now, now you know better. So stop living that way. Verse 31. For as he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Here he's speaking of Jesus, even though he doesn't use Jesus' name, interestingly. He continues, he has given proof to this, to, of this to everybody by raising this man, Jesus, from the dead. Now, it seems to me the fact that Paul wasn't saying Jesus Christ, and, you know, he's not trying to seal Close the deal right there. He's not trying to kind of, let me just share the gospel once and for all and that's it. He is beginning to really get into it. And when he brings up the idea of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, that's when things change. That's when the people in the Areopagus listening in begin to murmur. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, this is verse 32, some of them sneered. There will always be people who will mock us. Always be people who will write off the gospel as wishful thinking. There will be always be people who, as we are sharing our testimony, they'll just laugh it off as, are you kidding me? I mean, that you're using God as a crutch. But not everyone. Some of them sneered, but others said, well, we want to hear about this subject again. And at that, Paul left the council. He didn't stay there. He didn't say, hey, this is where I need to be forever. He left. But there were some who were convinced. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others who were convinced by what Paul shared. Now, there's a number of things. I know we've just covered a lot. And I want to just unpack this a little bit. Because I know that we are not Athens. I know that we, you know, in the last 2,000 years have matured so much that we no longer give in to the, the silly idolatry that they fell prey to. And yet, I can't help but feel that if Paul were to walk in here today, if he were to walk into Orange County, if he were to come to Costa Mesa, he would begin to recognize some idols that we also worship. And I was just thinking this week, like, what, what are some of the idols that he would call us out for if he were to walk into Costa Mesa? I wonder if he would say, you know, why is it that you walk around all day long with your head bowed to a phone? Why is it that you are so focused on currying the affirmation, the praise, the thumbs up from people you don't even know? that you will forego being present with the very people that matter the most to you. Why is that? And why is it that you are so stinking busy, even when you can't go anywhere? You're still busy. You've still filled up every waking moment. Your, your mind is still going a million miles a minute. Is it life-giving? If so... Why are you so exhausted all the time? Parents, 
Why is it that you expend so much of your energy trying to provide for your children what, what, the, what they truly need is you? And guys, listen, I'm speaking to myself here, okay? This is as much an indictment, if not more so, upon myself as any of us. So please don't feel like I'm pointing the finger at you. I am pointing the finger at me and saying, why? Why is it that you worship the almighty dollar? I mean, at least here, I think Paul would probably say, at least here you're being honest with yourselves because you recognize your dependence upon the dollar. Why else would you have stated, in God we trust on that very bill, if not to acknowledge your dependence on it? And, and can we just speak for a moment about politics, as, as dangerous as this is? Why is it that you will hyperfixate on every false word, on every stumble? Why will you celebrate when one party stumbles and falls flat on its face and you will grieve when the other one does? Why is it that you will decry immoral behavior on one side and not upon the other? And why is it that you are so hyper-focused and spending so much time on an election that is still four months away. Do you really think that that particular politician is your savior? Do you think that that party, if they are in power, will save you? Then that shows you where you've placed your trust. Now, I believe that these are just scratching the surface of the myriad idols that we worship. We worship people. We worship things. We worship image. We worship so many other things. We worship ourselves in many cases. And I wonder if Paul were to recognize these things, how he would approach it. Would he sign up for social media accounts, get on Twitter, get on Instagram, get on Facebook, and begin becoming one of those social media trolls that just goes looking for people who say things that are contrary to what he believes and then just hammering them. Is that how he would do it? You know, we all have people that are living like that. There are times where I find myself slipping into that where I am spending an inordinate amount of time trying to have conversations on social media and it's, it's painful. It's painful. Maybe he would approach it a different way. Maybe he would, he would show up at South Coast Plaza, where you know, we keep our silver and gold idols, um, and he would have a sign that says, get right or get left. And that's how he would go about doing it. He would stand out there on the street corner yelling at people to get right with Jesus. I don't see him doing that. Keep in mind that this is the same guy that said, I will become all things to all people that I might win a few. Paul was way too savvy to just push people away. He was way too savvy, a communicator, to ostracize his audience. Now, he, he, just like Jesus did, he reserved his harshest criticism for those who were on the inside, for those who should have gotten it. 
For those who said, I believe that the Bible is normative. I believe that Jesus is Lord. He saved his harshest criticism for them. But for those who were on the outside that did not view the Bible as normative for their life, that did not consider Jesus their Lord and their Savior, he approached it very differently. He went out of his way to speak their language. He went out of his way to make efforts to have conversation with them. Even though those conversations were not always fruitful. You, you remember Jesus' analogy of the kingdom of God being like somebody who's sowing seeds. And some of the seed falls on the hard ground. And the birds of the air eat it. And some of it falls on rocky soil. And although it springs up, it quickly withers and dies. But some of that seed falls on fertile soil. And for the sake of the few, Paul was willing to endure the ridicule of the many. So I think that Paul would probably have approached the conversation differently than we do. And I'm going to take a page out of his book. He quoted a pagan philosopher, a pagan poet, to communicate them. I'm going to go ahead and quote a a liberal NYU professor who wrote this about persuasion. Can we throw this up on the board? This is from a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He's an NYU professor and social psychologist. He writes this. No matter how good our logic, it's not going to change the minds of our opponents if they are in combat mode too. If you really want to change someone's mind on a moral or political matter, you'll need to see things from that person's angle as well as your own. And if you do truly see it from the other person's way, Deeply and intuitively, you might even find your own mind opening in response. Empathy is an antidote to self-righteousness. Empathy is an antidote to the self-righteous belief that you have a monopoly on the right answer. And whenever somebody disagrees with you, they're categorically wrong and you're categorically right. We have way too many people who are walking through this life convinced that they have a monopoly on the right answer. Even some of us within the church are unwilling to listen because we're convinced that we already know. What's the point of listening? But if we hope to be able to speak our audience's language, one of the things I constantly had to remind my, my students in my persuasive writing classes about was don't bother writing an essay to persuade people who already agree with you. Why waste your energy? They already agree with you. Instead, try to choose an, a target audience that does not see it the way you do. And then... Make an effort to understand where they're coming from. And in order to do this, guys, we must step out of our carefully cultivated echo chambers. We need to stop just listening to people who say what we already believe. You know, we all do it, right? Those of you who get all of your information from Fox News, if you hope to communicate with people who see the world differently, need to perhaps watch a different news station. And those of you who would never turn on Fox News but would only get your information from CNN or MSNBC, you need to maybe perhaps change the channel. Not because the people on that station are categorically right, 
but rather because if you hope to speak the language of people who disagree with you, you need to understand their language. You need to hear where they're being educated. But I will say that that, that's not nearly as effective as having a conversation one-on-one with a human being. Talking to people who don't necessarily agree with you. And when I say talking, I mean ask a question and then do this very uncommon thing in this culture. Listen. Really listen to what they say. Listen for what is underneath this. What's motivating this person's perspective? How has their story and the people that they care about shaped their understanding of this narrative? It will begin, whether or not it changes our heart on the subject, it will begin to change our understanding of how we articulate the gospel because the gospel never changes. But our articulation of the gospel has to if we hope to speak to people who don't already agree with us. Guys, this is something I'm still learning to do. Uh, one of the things that Paul was an expert at was taking things from that culture and using them as a hook to be able to have a conversation about Jesus. He did that with the idols. Rather than pounding them over the head for having the idols, he used their idols as the hook, as the stepping stone into a conversation. And then he steered the conversation around to Jesus, around to the gospel, like he always did. What does that mean for us? Well, it doesn't mean that we simply forego ever being on social media. Because in our culture, we don't have an Areopagus. We don't have a central meeting point where all the influencers of our day gather. Except that social media is that, isn't it? That's where influencers speak into the world and people are are batting ideas around and exploring things. Now, it is limited in the sense that you have this whole swath of people who see things differently. But it is a place where conversations that unfortunately often devolve into arguments take place. But it is the closest analog to the Areopagus in our culture. And rather than being people who just say, I wash my hands of all of it. I hope that we will be the kind of people who lean in and say, what can we learn? How can I begin to become a student of the very people that God loves, that he's called me to be a witness to? How can I hear what matters to them? How can I begin to understand their language? And then, with prayer, begin to speak into it. Now, I'm still learning how to do this. About two weeks ago, I sent you guys a devotional that I had written on June 19th, which many of us remember now as Juneteenth, right? And Juneteenth was a celebration of the, the last bastion of slaves in America hearing that they were free. And that happened two years after the Emancipation Proclamation actually made them free. And so in many ways, whereas July 4th, is America's Independence Day, Juneteenth is, is those of African-American descent's Independence Day. It's the last, it's the day that they finally heard the good news. And then what I did in that devotional I sent you is I said, hey, in the same way, 2,000 years ago, Jesus declared emphatically that we are free. 
You no longer need to carry around the chains of sin and shame and guilt. You are free. And you know this. Because you've tasted and you've seen this. So now you get to be the kind of people who get to be the conduits of that. You get to carry the good news to others. That's how I wrote that devotional because I was speaking to people who are in the church. And the assumption I was making is that you have tasted and seen that Jesus is good, that you have accepted him as your Savior and your Lord. And I felt like, you know what? That worked out. Let me share that on social media. So I sent it out on my, on my Facebook page. And I got plenty of thumbs up, right? Because that's what I was going for. Um, But in hindsight, as I have this conversation with you today, I just need to confess to my family, I missed an opportunity. Because what I wrote to you when sent into the the anti-social media sphere, because that's really what it is, when I sent it out there, it was to a completely different audience and I should have taken the time to think, how are they going to hear this? When the people that I am hoping, instead of saying, hey, those of you who already agree with me, you have a job to share the gospel. I wish that I had taken the time to rewrite the ending to say to those who still find themselves captive, today, I get to declare to you that you don't have to carry the chains of sin and shame any longer. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, signed your own emancipation proclamation and you are free. So you don't need to do anything to earn this. You don't need to try to make up for your mistakes. I wish I'd done that, but I didn't. But this is what Paul is teaching me, even as I read this for like the thousandth time. Even though I've taught through this before, it still teaches me I have a long way to go. If we hope to speak to people who don't agree with us, we must first be willing to listen to them. We must learn the values, their perspectives, their holdups, the things that drive them away from the church. And we need to be willing and courageous enough to acknowledge the ways we've misstepped. And then we have the opportunity to share the hope that we have. But may we do so with humility. May we do so without being super defensive and growing angry when people aren't convinced. Not everybody will be. There will be people who will mock us. But for the few, we endure the ridicule of the many because they're worth it. And I would encourage you to look for opportunities to have one-on-one conversations with people who disagree with you. And don't simply try to tell them what you think. Start by listening. One of of the wisest things I heard about a decade and a half ago is, is we were launching a church at the former church I was at. We were we were helping plant a church up in Hollywood. And the pastor that was going to be up there, do, you know, leading this church, said it used to be that we could reason people into the kingdom of God. That's why apologetics was everything 20 years ago. Why all of the college classes were about apologetics in Christian colleges. But we're finding that in postmodernism, we can't just reason people into the kingdom of God. Because people approach they're thinking far more from their own experiences than they do from some kind of set of concrete rules and and reason. 
And so what we're finding is that today, we need to listen people into the kingdom. And that means that you begin by hearing their story. You begin by hearing what makes them tick. You begin by hearing the wounds that they carry around, that they were abused by their father. And so whenever you call God father, it's like you're just hitting them. That's going to be an obstacle to the gospel. We must take the time to become students of our audience if we hope to be able to win a few. So may we be people who are not afraid to communicate. May we be the people who are not afraid to live our faith out loud. And may we not be afraid to rub shoulders with people who disagree with us. Jesus sure did. Paul sure did. And as followers of Jesus, we want to just let our lives speak as well. Let's pray. Father God, I am grateful that you use imperfect vessels like us. We confess that this whole conversation is kind of scary because it, it, it exposes us. It, um, we don't always know what to say. In fact, we seldom know what to say. But I'm grateful, Holy Spirit, that you are in us and that you say, don't be afraid when you find yourselves before rulers and influencers. Don't be afraid of what you will say. I will give you the words. God, would you give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see those who are around us? Would you help us to become students of our culture? Not just the people who agree with us, but the ones who disagree. Because you died for them as well and you love them just as much as you love us. And Father, once you have shown us them, would you show us how to come alongside of them. Would you give us the words? Would you give us the discernment to know when to just be silent and listen? Help yourself to our lives because they are worth it. And you are good. And we long that they would come to know the truth, that they're free. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.
well, all right. So this is the part that normally I'd be like, let's go, and there's like nobody here. But here's the reminder for me. Even though we're not in the same building right now, even though we're not able to worship together, we are worshiping our God. And worship doesn't stop the moment we walk out this door. In fact, our worship begins when we walk out the door. Our worship begins when we begin to interact with people who disagree with us, who see the world from a different perspective. So your worship begins now. And may we be the kind of people who trust our God enough not to be afraid of a world that doesn't call him Lord yet. May we not be afraid of their ridicule. May we not be afraid of being written off. May we not be afraid of being canceled, fired, persecuted for our faith. May we also not be jerks in the process of sharing the hope we have within us, right? May we be the kind of people whose lives draw people to want to know more about what we believe, and then we can give them an answer for the hope that we have in us with humility, gentleness, and respect. Now, as I was as worshiping, I, I recognize that there are probably many of you at home who are saying, this is a great conversation, but quite honestly, I don't feel called at all into that arena. I don't feel called to be making statements on social media. I don't feel called to be speaking to the influencers of our day. I'm not an influencer myself. And to you, I would say you are an influencer. God has given you a sphere of influence. He's given you people who look to you and are watching the way you live, whether whether you recognize it or not. To you, I'm simply saying, would you prayerfully consider who God has placed around you? Would you prayerfully consider what's going on in their life? May you become students of the people God has placed around you and pray for them regularly. May you pray that God would give you the ability to see their heart and see what's driving them and see what's weighing them down so that you will, be, so that you will know better how the gospel is good news for them in their context. Because guys, our, the Bible and what it points to, the one it points to, Jesus, he is utterly relevant even in this day where it feels like he's being more and more marginalized. He's as relevant today as he was in the first century in Athens when Paul was standing before the influences of his day. He is just as relevant, if not more so today. And you get the opportunity to be his ambassadors. Now, I would love to join you in lifting up the things that are heavy on your heart. If you have a prayer request, please let us know. Even though you're not here to fill out a card, just email it to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. We still pray for them every single week. And if you want to give as a declaration to God that your trust is in Him and you want to support the ministry, you can go to lighthousecommunity.com and there's a give button right there on the front page and you can do it that way. But now let me just pray a blessing over you. If you would bow your heads wherever you are. Father God, we are your people who are called by your name and we are grateful that we get to be used by you even though we don't feel up to the task. So Holy Spirit... Help yourself to our lives. Give us the eyes to see the hurting around us. Give us the ears to hear the cry of their heart. 
Give us hearts that break for what breaks your hearts. Feet that move towards them. Hands that reach out to them to hold them up and pick them up. And tongues that only speak your truth and your words. We give you our lives. For the sake of the few, we are willing to endure the ridicule of the many. Because they're worth it. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.